Welcome to the 36th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On June 29, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project celebrated its 25th anniversary with an event called Keeping the Land and People Together. This evening of readings and discussion featured authors Wendell Berry, Mary Rose O'Reilly, and Joe Paddock. In Ear to the Ground number 35, we featured Wendell Berry's readings. In this podcast, we are showcasing Mary Rose O'Reilly, a Minnesota-based poet and essayist. O'Reilly has been a professor of English at the University of St. Thomas and is the author of The Love of Impermanent Things, A Threshold Economy, and The Barn at the End of the World, The Apprenticeship of a Quaker Buddhist Shepherd. O'Reilly has received numerous honors for her work, including the Walt Whitman Award for her first book-length collection of poems, Half Wild. She has also been a finalist for the Minnesota Book Awards. During the Keeping the Land and People Together event, O'Reilly read a few of her poems, as well as an essay. I said I was going to read some sad farm poems and some happy farm poems, but I got sort of lost trying to decide which was which. But I thought I'd read a couple from half wild and then a few new ones and then some gross nonfiction from the barn at the end of the world which I think I can read in this company I wrote this poem when I was studying um, in Plum Village Monastery in France and used to go for long walks among the old abandoned farmhouses in that part of southern France this one is called Home Farm after some time Blackberry vines gather around your table. The roof tree does not remember you, falls finally, old nailing, undone, into the tumble of thorn. You stood so long at that window, hearing the tap of vines, relentless desire. Green nails that dug like your own, longing that pulled you from bed before dawn, down to the lambing pens, longing that dragged the plow. Desire drove your hands in the dough, flicked from each moment a clear bubble and sent it floating over the grass. The beam still stands over your bed. I think the stones hold also love cries, birth cries. Here, where you cradled the winter lamb, sucked out its death with your own mouth. Where two of you held the lamb in your bed's heat till it chose, stretched, and entered its life. That inviolate day, nothing not done for loving, floats over the choke of vines. This one is called Abandoned Farm. This is a poem that people think is really bummed out, and when I read it in North Dakota, everybody left the room. But it was Super Bowl Sunday. But I think it's a poem about forgiveness and imagination. So there. The abandoned farm. In the northwest corner of Dakota, I saw a room someone had left, 
a plush sofa returning its button-eyed stare to the glance she gave it over her shoulder, the dog, too, turning. In the next room, the mattress with mattress stories, one after another tumbling out of each spring, the window she opened first thing, its vista of mile after mile, and the windmill hauling its load. I saw that, and nothing alive. Green oil-figured linoleum laid on counters, nails of bad craft, the ripped blackening edge that scared her more than the bed, and the sound of the windmill winning its will from the aquifer night after night, the whack of her blade on the block. There are houses with too many knives, sometimes, she said. But when June burned its way in, she'd relent, take on its restraint, heave again on the stained sheets her burden of child, herself a torn girl again, combing her hair through fingers bruised by corn shocks, sweet juice in the cuts of her life. She'd think of the border and mustangs without brand. At night, they'd bend over the bed and nuzzle. One ride was enough. She had sufficient magic to cling to a mane and fare over the windowsill. I see where the curtain fell and nobody mended the tear. I see where bare feet marked like fossils her pass in the rain. When he uncovers fiddleheads by the spring, why does he always think of that first sight of her thigh in the peach-colored dress, of his hands searching moss with its red-gold stamens, the spring in that arid landscape like something from Canaan under his tongue? Even in old age, he pondered the moment, lying under the moon, forgiving himself, her, the world that bred their conundrum, washed in that rain. So I don't know if those are happy or sad. I know that this is happy. This is a second chapter from um, The Barn at the End of the World. It's called 8 a.m. in the Sheep Barn. And now we are in the prose world. This would never be in a poem. Sheep prolapse their rectums because they cough too much. Ben, the barn manager, was telling me as we headed into the morning's task, trimming necrotic tissue from the rectums of five 200-pound Hampshire ram lambs. I'm capable of dithering for years over some foolish decision, but at other times, important shifts, shifts come with absolute authority in the time it takes to sink a basket or fall dead. One day, after I came back to America from Anna's sheep farm in England, I found myself brooding over a question of lamb nutrition. Phone Hank, a farming friend, told me. He's a professor of sheep science. Incredulously, sheep, science, that's what they call it at the college. A conversation with Hank about colostrum and intubation fascinated me so much that I blurted, if I want to find out more about this, what should I do? Be at the sheep barn at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, he said. 
Okay, I said, and there went my plans for the next year and a half. <laughs> Hank put me under Ben's tutelage. Ben was a senior agriculture student, strong and competent, who had grown up on a sheep farm in western Minnesota. He had white blonde hair and wore a feed cap that said, I care about my animals. What makes them cough, I wanted to know. Anna's sheep in England rarely coughed. If you could tell me that. Ben's voice trailed off as the stench of necrotic tissue wafted up from the hindquarters of the ram we were working on. What I don't do for you guys, Ben said to the sheep. The rectum is a straight tube of intestinal tissue, and when a sheep coughs repeatedly, the tube is pushed out and protrudes from the anus like an angry sausage. I couldn't read this in South Dakota, I don't know why. When that happens, our task is to wrap a heavy rubber band around the protrusion, cutting off the blood supply and necrotizing the tissue. First, we plug the rectum with a syringe casing. There are always a few left over from routine inoculations. Through the casing open at both ends, the lamb can continue to defecate. After a few days, when the tissue is dead, you cut it off, and that's what we're doing today. I hand instruments to Ben and hold the grunting lambs in the metal cradle that flips them with their feet in the air, bum presenting. This procedure does not make the lambs happy, but they leave in better condition than they arrived with a walk similar to the postpartum swagger of women on the delivery floor. Bolting out of bed at six that morning, I had suffered a fashion crisis. What to wear on a Minnesota farm? The older farmers I know wear brown polyester jumpsuits like factory workers. The young ones wear jeans, but the forecast was for 95 degrees with heavy humidity. The wardrobe of Quaker ladies in their middle years runs to denim skirts and hiking boots. This outfit had worked fine for me in England, but one of my jobs in Minnesota will be to climb into the industrial cuisinart in the hay barn and mix 50-pound bags of nutritional supplement and corn into blades as big as my body. Getting a skirt caught in that thing would be bad news for Betty Crocker. My favorite cotton shirt is printed with sunflowers and celebrates organic gardening week in big green letters. I've decided this shirt might be impolitic. Organic gardeners are about as welcome in production farming as bird watchers in logging country. <laughs> Finally, I settled on lightweight cotton pants and one of my son's v-neck undershirts. This ensemble turns out to be perfect for trimming rectal tissue. When Ben gave me my inaugural tour of the barn, he made it clear that his major interest is in lamb production. Our polypay flock, a mixture of Dorset, Targhee, Finn, and Rambouillet, is bred to bear young almost year-round. He doesn't encourage dependency. When I started here, Ben told me, the ewes would come up to me and groan and want help with the lambing. I make them lamb on their own. My goal is to make every animal in here independent of me. Ben's hard-ass pose makes me think he would not be sympathetic to organic gardeners and vegetarians. I want to stay anonymous in my affiliations, if only to avoid being stereotyped as the lamb hugger I am. I long to be accepted as a worker. 
among workers. In turn, I try not to stereotype Ben. He works hard, seems to love it, and is a natural, hands-on teacher. I consort with a lot of liberals who are animal rights activists, and while I respect their positions, I find they often do not know much about the practical order. In fact, investigating the essential facts of food production is one thing that's drawn me to the barn. One professorial friend recently scolded me about the perverse and unnatural business of breeding animals year-round. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. On the other hand, many third world people, mostly women, depend on lamb production to make their living. I could count my English friend, Anna, among these marginal women. She runs 20 sheep, and each one is an individual to her, living out a fairly normal ruminant life, except, of course, for the lambs, whose sale has put her sons through university. Yet even slaughter can be accomplished with respect. Anna takes the lambs to her local butcher two by two in a small van because she believes the large cattle trucks frighten them. The butcher renders them unconscious with a stun gun and then cuts their throats. They are hung immediately and the meat is perfectly tended. Anna believes it's a mark of reverence for the animals to take perfect care of their meat and to waste nothing. I told my friend that if I wanted to have an effect on animal rights, I would be inclined to follow Anna's reasonable example, Mary, Ben snaps, across my line of internal chatter. Stop thinking. Flip that ram for me. Your body knows how to do it. Don't try to do it with your mind. Ben has, in some cosmic transaction, accepted the position of my Zen master. Thank you. For more on LSP's 25th anniversary, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the About Us link. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.